tonight I, I'm, I, I may be biting off more than I can chew. We're going to take a look at a Proverbs 31 woman. And uh, a lot of you guys are going, why that? Uh, it actually has to do with the church. Uh, the church is the bride of Christ. We're going to take a look at Proverbs 31, uh, the misconceptions of, of a wife in our culture. And uh, we're going to take a look at it and how it pertains to the church. So open up to Proverbs 31, if you would. Proverbs 31. And we're going to pick up this evening at verse 10. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Proverbs 31, I'm going to start with verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not evil, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she reaches out her hand to the needy. She's not afraid to, uh, she, excuse me, she's not afraid of snow for her household for her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestries for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. And while you're standing, I'm going to read a couple other verses Ephesians chapter 5, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, let uh, just as Christ, ch the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the body. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, joined, joined, side by side, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then a couple of other closing verses his soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. Psalm twenty-five, thirteen. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 9. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Psalm 37, 11. For such as he blessed of him, uh, for such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they shall be cursed of him shall be cut off. Psalm 37. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Psalm 37, Isaiah 65, And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. And then finally, Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All this will make sense, trust me. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Holy Spirit, lead us now into all truth. Cause us to come alive to your living word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so everybody's heard the verses read continually. Oftentimes, Proverbs 31 is read to the consternation of many. As you read those and you think nobody can live up to those standards, and it's exhausting, and it's convicting, and it's somewhat condemning. And then as you go further into 
Ephesians chapter five, where you're giving, given these responsibilities as a wife, and then you're placed under the authority of Ephesians five, which says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as a church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. And then it goes on to say, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And then it goes further to say, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. What is the church in relation to Christ? Uh, if we talk about relationships, bride, so we're dealing with a picture of, in a sense, a marriage. So how does Christ respond to his people? He bathes us in the water of the word. He gives us authority. And if we coincide Ephesians 5 with submission, we submit to his authority. But is it a submission of a patriarchy? Is it a submission to modern-day feminism? Is it a submission in what capacity? Uh, and when you read Proverbs 31 and you see the intensity of it, you, you have the idea that this is an ideal woman uh, in the Bible is retiring, servile. She's, she's entirely domestic. That's not the case. You read Proverbs 31. This is a woman who's an excellent wife, mother. She's also a manufacturer, an importer, a manager, a realtor, a farmer, a seamstress, an upholsterer, a merchant. Her strength and dignity do not come from her amazing achievements. However, they are a result of her reverence for God in our society where physical appearances count for so much. It may surprise us to realize that her appearance is never mentioned. Her attractiveness comes entirely by her character. Her husband is known in the gates that we read in verse 23. Because of her, her husband is well known in the community. He has a good reputation among those of the land. Uh, Ellicott wrote, <clears throat> and I, I, I had this quote, instead of being a hindrance to her husband's advancement, she furthers it. Her influence for good extends to him also. Having no domestic anxieties, he is set free to do his part in public life. So the question is, what's the church's role in relation to Christ, if we are the bride, we're to be manufacturers, we're to be industrious, we're to make sure that his position in the public gate is well known. Uh, we're, we're farmers, we're seamsters, we're upholsters, we're merchants, we're realtors, we're managers, we're importers, we're manufacturers. This is the role of the church. But what we have now is in our day and age, we have a struggle that's occurred and the church is suffering because we look at these things and we don't realize that the very first verse that we read this evening, verse 10, take a look at it. It says, who can find a virtuous wife? Another way it's translated as excellent wife. But if you look at Chaim, which is the Hebrew word, it's a really cool word. It means a military wife, a Navy wife, an army wife, a Marine wife. Toughest people on the planet. A police officer's wife, fireman's wife. I want to show you some slides. Do we have them ready? I want to talk about a military wife. 18th of July, 1957, Louise McCoy, mother of two. She's a Navy wife. That's my mom. And on the 18th of July, 1957, her husband was at sea. She was taking care of the two children. She was pregnant with a third. And... Um, as she was taking care of the kids, living off a lieutenant's salary, which was a pittance, she was on the eastern seaboard in Groton, Connecticut. Her husband was out at sea on maneuvers. Uh, she was paying the bills. She was feeding the children. She was operating the household in his absence with full authority and doing everything with absolute authority in the absence of her husband and holding that house together. And then all of a sudden, let's go to the next one. My dad, who retired as Navy captain at the time, was lieutenant. I don't have, I have a picture on my wall of him as a lieutenant, but I, I only have this one as a captain. And uh, he was the, the, the commanding officer of the USS Summersworth. And he was off the eastern seaboard, right off of Montauk, New York. Um, and uh, this is what happened. Let's go to the next slide. Blast on a patrol vessel, fatal to three sailors. Three men died, four were injured, one man lost his arm. I met him later in life. Um, three U.S. sailors were killed last night aboard the escort patrol ship USS Summersworth when a two-and-a-half-pound TNT charge went off accidentally. The accident occurred in Atlantic about 120 miles uh, east of here, home base of Summersworth, to which now has returned under her own power. 
Two of the dead have been identified. They are pipe fitter first class Anthony Ford, who died in my father's arms, whose widow lives in Groton, Connecticut, who my father visited, and so did my mother. My mother was the first to visit and explained to the woman that her husband had died. Quartermaster first class John Turley, whose widow lives in New London. My mother also visited her before my father died. Four other Navy men were injured seriously in the blast. The injury Uh, The injured aboard were removed by the liner Queen Mary, the one that's in repose in Long Beach Harbor, which altered course uh, for England to pull alongside the stricken vessel because they had a doctor on board. It was the only one that had a doctor and the ability to care for these critically wounded sailors. Uh, Boats were lowered for the transfer. Let's go to the next picture if we could. This was on the Queen Mary. uh, Notice to all passengers uh, at... uh, 7.10 p.m., 17 July, United States Patrol Craft 849 requested medical assistance. Four dangerously injured men were transferred by this ship's boat to the Queen Mary's Hospital for Essential Medical Attention. And this was written in the Queen Mary. It's in the log of the Queen Mary if you go to the location and repose in Long Beach Harbor. And let's go to the next one. These were pictures of the wounded being transferred. You can see um, this one's critically injured. That's a Queen Mary officer to the right. These are all Queen, uh, those were USS Summersworth personnel carrying him, and the ones that are in the kind of butler outfits are Queen Mary personnel. Go to the next one. This is a man who lost his arm. I met him later at a reunion. He was with his two sons that he had managed to father after this accident. He was crying. My father had Alzheimer's, couldn't speak. My mother was with me. The man was crying, saying to my father, thank you for saving my life. My dad had no idea what he was talking about. Yet my mother was interceding and talking and saying, I remember you. She knew his name. She represented my father well. The man hugged me, hugged my father, hugged my mother. The boys came up, shook our hands with hands that they possessed that their father didn't. Go to the next one. Here he is again. You can see his one arm is out and the other one is totally missing. And then the next slide. This is the Summersworth, the explosion. The thing that saved my father's life are those three-quarter-inch steel plating up at the bridge that are facing out like this. When the explosion occurred, those folded over and protected my dad's life. And the next one, I think that might be it. That's it. That's a Navy wife. She took care of everything. Even in my father's older age, she represented him well, Remember the names of each of the sailors. She was the first to visit their families and notify uh, those that had deceased of of the death of their husbands. She cried with them all while maintaining the household. She wasn't passive. She was very industrious. My mother never forgot birthdays. She never forgot anniversaries. She wrote thank you cards. She was an amazing woman. And I, I, I look at today and I think about, you know, kind of the view we have of, of what the church is about and what women are supposed to be. And according to Proverbs 31, when you see this chayim, which is this word for virtuous, it means a military wife. If you have any question of what a wife's supposed to be like, it's a military wife. Christians are supposed to, are, uh, uh, Christians are supposed not merely to endure change, nor even profit by it, but to cause it. This is Harry Fosdick. He wrote that in, in uh, the 1900s. We're, we're not just supposed to merely endure change. We're supposed to cause it, be profited by it. Every two years, a Navy wife would tr- change locations. They would, they would move to new countries. In the time that I lived, I've been on the earth 52 years. I remember going from um, Coronado to Long Beach. I was born in Coronado. We went to Long Beach Station there. We went to Yokosuka, Japan. We came to Washington, D.C. We went back to San Diego. And prior to that, my siblings had experienced even other changes every two years. And, and my parents lived in 17 houses in Coronado in the course of their lifetime. My mother moved each one of them, packed it up, moved it out, packed it up, moved it out, packed it up, moved it out. Overseas, pack it up, move it out. She managed to take care of all of these delicate antiques that were handed down and, and make sure they got from point A to point B, got the house all set up, military wife, tough as nails. That's a Proverbs 31 woman. That's the picture of a Proverbs 31 woman. That's exactly what the scriptures depict. And as you go through it, the heart of her husband safely trusts her so we have no lack of gain. She does him good, not evil, all the days of her life. She calls him on stuff when he's out of line. In our day and age, we think, woman, shut up. Do as you're told and like it. And if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And I'm allowed to act like an idiot. And there's no, I don't want your opinion. You're, you're to submit. That is not a biblical perspective 
of what God intends for a Proverbs 31 wife. Proverbs 31 wife calls the man on that. You're equals. Yes, there's fellowship and leadership, but you're equals. You're equals in the sense that you operate together. One has authority and represents the other in the absence. But if one is out of line, the other calls him to account. Doesn't mean while you submit to the other while they're engaging in illicit behavior. You're to intercede. At times we become complacent, satisfied with our lot, and quite happy to carry on as usual. Think about Abraham as he was called before the Lord named him Abraham. Was it in that frame of mind when the Lord said to him, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, Genesis 12.1. People need challenges. They need responsibility. They need a sense of purpose and significance. If all you're supposed to do is the laundry and take care of the kids and be barefoot and pregnant, there is no sense of purpose in many respects. And what we've done is we've adopted a paganistic view of women in our culture today, and it's permeated the church. We talk about patriarchy and feminism. The two go hand in hand, actually. You think patriarchy and feminism, how do they go hand in hand? You need to dump patriarchy and feminism all together. And what I mean by that is a modern view of feminism, a modern view of patriarchy. As a Christian, you may have been taught to think that patriarchy is biblical, while feminism is secular and pagan. That's not true. Both modern patriarchy and modern feminism have pagan and idolatrous foundations and origins, and neither is consistent with the message of the Bible. As you've seen in Proverbs 31, this is a true biblical woman. This is a picture of what God intends not only for a woman, but for the church, her rightful place in the kingdom of God. Modern feminism, and I didn't memorize all this, so bear with me. Modern feminism, of course, is completely lost in a hole of irrationality and, to be honest, outright insanity. And I love this example, this feminist idiocy, the conclusion. They, they, I just read an article that they say breastfeeding, to call breastfeeding natural is unethical because it has sexist overtones. They're destroying themselves. What does that mean calling breastfeeding natural reinforces a certain set of values about gender roles? Well, to say it's natural means that the woman's supposed to always do this. <laughs> is it more ethical to call it unnatural? Isn't that how a child feeds? How do you convince women of this? They're, they're destroying their own movement by, by, by trying to make women the same as men and men the same as women. Do you, do you really want to tell a, newborn, uh, a mother of a newborn baby that her breastfeeding is unnatural? Do you know how stupid that sounds? Am I the only one who says the emperor's not wearing any clothes? We teach this to our children. We go through feminist class in colleges and we're trying to indoctrinate generations of young people. Go, and you just go, well, I'm sorry. I mean, it's a natural source of food for a child, but it's unnatural to provide that. Instead, let's mix some sort of a chemical in a bottle and hand. All right, maybe you all don't agree with me. I thought it was crazy. The feminist movement is women who have built their defense of women by trying to make women be men. It's not going to work. We're wholly different. A man will never, ever, 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 we can do this again, ever, 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 ever have a baby. I don't care what you show on CNN, what you show that two men are having a baby. They aren't. It's a woman who was taking hormones to be a man, had to stop taking hormones in order to get pregnant. A man will never, ever, 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 ever have a baby, ever. It's not going to happen. Why, why do we allow this insanity? And we teach our children that this is somehow acceptable. Women who find their self-identity in pretending to be men are very rare, even among non-Christians, and such women are seldom capable of having any influence over other women. That's why the feminist movement and people are looking and going, I want to be a true feminist, but that doesn't make sense to me. And don't be quick to assume that just because modern feminism is self-destructive by calling breastfeeding unnatural, that this will automatically translate into a cultural victory for the church. Yeah, we're winning. No, we aren't. Here's why. The response to feminism by the church has been dangerous 
But let me share this with you. The earlier women's rights movement, so-called the first wave feminism, was about defending the legal rights and equality of women in society, which had been under attack by the different legal theories of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment quickly destroyed the legal equality which European Christendom had built for women. Yeah, that's right. You heard it. That's exactly what I said. Contrary to what many people believe today, the humiliating lower legal status of women in the 19th century was not the product of Christianity, but of the Enlightenment. The original women's rights movement was not directed at destroying the family, which is what the modern feminist movement is doing, but only at restoring women to their rightful place of authority beside men. That's the same place to which they were elevated centuries earlier in Christendom as we read Proverbs 31 and we read all the other passages. Paganism had no legal rights nor any legal place for women in society. The legal status of a married woman in Athens... for example, was no different than the legal status of a married woman in Saudi Arabia today. Women were not allowed to leave the home unattended. They were not allowed to inherit property. Courtesans had more rights than married women. Courtesans were high-class prostitutes or mistresses associated with the rich and powerful. In fact, they enjoyed greater freedom and public influence than married women did because they at least had the ear of, of the man that they were involved with. Christendom, on the other hand, elevated women and gave them a special place in the society, culturally and legally, especially married women. The Enlightenment restored the pagan view of women and led to a lower civil rights position for women. And the early women's rights movement tried to restore Christendom's ideal. Unfortunately, the churches in the 19th and 20th century did not respond to the women's rights movement with biblical view, but instead joined the Enlightenment's pagan view of women in their role in society And this is where we get the concept of patriarchy. For over a millennium, Christendom had built a foundation of justice for the place of women in society. If you want it real simple, it's this. The church is a woman, a bride, as we covered earlier. One woman can't establish her own authority by denigrating the authority of another woman in society. And that should be obvious to all. And that's the insanity of the modern feminist movement. But since this is obviously strange, modern feminism is an easy target, especially for the church. And it's been a target of many conservative preachers. And I witnessed this throughout the course of my ministry. It's been the target of conservative preachers and churches whose purpose is to restore and protect the biblical family. So far, so good. However, this was the downturn. The problem with many, if not most, of these conservative preachers and churches is that their criticism of feminism and defense of the biblical family are based on another extreme which has pagan origins, and that's called patriarchy. Patriarchy is an idea that the father and the husband in the family is the ruler of the family. Has anyone ever heard of Doug Phillips? Has anyone ever heard of Doug Phillips? Yes, back here? I'm sorry? Homeschooling, yeah. Um... I think values for him. I can't remember the name. Huh? Yeah. Really big in the patriarchy movement. And the idea is, you know, courtship under marriage and, and, and the father decides who the daughter's to marry and you go through all this and everyone in the family is subservient and he had multiple kids and he actually lost his ministry because uh, one of the nannies that worked in the family he ended up having sexual relations with and it imploded really did wonders for the body of Christ. But we emphasize this in the 19th and 20th century, that the husband is a ruler to the point where the wife, and by extension all other women in the family, uh, are absorbed into the family unit as an addendum, not as an individual and distinct person of authority and covenantal standing. Ruler to the point where his wife has no independent authority of her own, but her authority is only delegated to her by her husband. I'm sorry, I'm reading Proverbs 31. I don't see that. I didn't see it with my mom when she held the family together. The concept of rulership has then been expanded to include not only the children in their childhood, um, but it goes on even into their adult years in many regards. They're supposed to stay with the clan system, obeying their father and serving their father, even while having their own families and children. Girls are not encouraged to develop academically and professionally because their place is in the kitchen or to breed more children. As some modern patriarchal Preachers declare a woman who works outside the house commits sin. Now, that's not common, but it was in the 80s and 90s. It's died today. It's, it's dying, thank God. Uh, Bill Gothard was a big proponent of that. He, he established this. 
Doug Phillips established it. Uh, Phil Lancaster, has anyone ever heard of Phil Lancaster? He wrote a book called Family Man, Family Leader. Let me read you one of the things out of his book. He advises a husband before leaving for work in the morning to leave for mom a list of chores and errands she's supposed to do during the day with the clear instructions on each point. Thus, according to the book, mom knows that this heavy burden of deciding what needs to be done is taken off her shoulders and all she needs to do is follow the list. Then at the end of the day, dad comes back home and spends time with mom going over the list, praising her for what she's accomplished and working for improvement on the points she hasn't. You like it. <laughs> Most men do. But David, you married the wrong woman. Amen. Amen. It works to establish a man's authority by denigrating and humiliating women as nothing more than imbeciles under his care. The reason should be obvious such views of women produce in young Christian men the expectation that the woman they want to marry must be somehow inclined to be babysat and patronized. Um. I like this idea that in the final account, many of these young men are looking not for a helpmate, but for a helpmaid, for a perpetual child, which they will patronize and boss around under the pretense of exercising male leadership in the house. Patriarchal, uh, patriarch, uh, patriarchalism creates in men the impression that women are inferior creatures and that not much can be entrusted to them outside of cooking, laundry, and giving birth. For everything else, they need disciplining or discipling. And any authority they have in the house must be carefully controlled by their husbands. As an extension of this ideology, the husbands are expected to remain perpetual children and therefore to be constantly controlled by their fathers or in some cases by their father-in-laws. And what it creates is just weak men, especially in those types of homes. Wisdom is proven by our children. You take a look at any of those and it is destructive. The system is consistent in that it doesn't allow for any level of independent maturity under God at any level. And this is where we're going to go tonight, and I, I, I don't want to belabor it, but this idea of a concubine, um, somebody who's under your control, and, and this, is, this is the idea of, of the patriarchal mindset, uh, a woman who is restricted to the position of a housemaid with only delegated but no direct authority in the house is considered a concubine in the Bible, not a wife. My mother had complete authority to write the checks and take care of the house in the absence of my father. She made decisions and tough ones. A concubine in the Bible is a woman who comes into the family without a dowry and therefore has no inheritance in the family. Having no inheritance, she has no authority of her own in the family except over her own children, who, by the way, don't have the right to inherit either. She's entitled to all rights of a wife, but she doesn't have the privileges of a wife. Any authority she may possess over her husband's home can come only from his goodwill. He has a right to delegate to her responsibilities and authority, but he has no obligation to do so. Thus, from a covenantal perspective, modern patriarchalists, by denigrating the authority of the woman in the family and by placing all authority in the hands of the husband to delegate to her whatever he wants are really looking not for wives but for concubines. But in the world after the cross, there are no more concubines. The cross is here. God brought deliverance. There's no more concubines. There's no more second-rate wives. Ephesians 5 and 6 points that out. The fact that there are no more concubines in the world after the cross affects the way that we view the church and her covenantal status before God. And I'll point this out. There's a, there's a connection between the different existing eschatologies and how they view the church as the bride of Christ. Calvary chapels are pre-trib, pre-millennial in our eschatology. Our founders were post-millennial. There's a couple other terms, all millennial. There's dispensationalists that are tied in with Premillennial. These are all terms that I don't really want to take time to describe tonight. Um, but if you do your homework, you'll be able to see how these eschatologies view the church. Modern amillennialism, which is just millennialism, they view the church as simply a girlfriend or at least at best a fiancé of Christ, almost a wife, but not yet. She has no authority over the world, which is hers, uh, which is her husband's estate. Like a virtuous fiance, her focus is on purity, not on responsibility or authority. She's not expected to take over the world as her legitimate sphere of work and dominion. She doesn't have that legal right. Modern dispensationalists 
view the church as a concubine of Christ. The real fully privileged wife is national Israel, and all the promises and inheritance belong to the real wife. But since for a time the real wife has eloped with her heathen lovers, Jesus has taken a temporary consort, the church, with the purpose to incite the real wife, national Israel, to jealousy and thus return Israel to himself. The church has all the rights of a wife, and she will be rewarded for her services, but she has no inheritance or authority for all the promises belong by right to Israel. And then there's postmillennialism. Their view of the church as the true, fully privileged wife of Christ, this was our founder's view. Not only does she have the rights of a wife, she is fully representing of her husband and has full authority over his estate, the world. She's expected to take dominion over the world now and to exercise her authority in bringing the world. She has full authority. She doesn't have to wait for any permission to rule in her own right. Being Christ's body in his fullness, Ephesians 1.23, she's redeemed, crowned, and enthroned to rule with him. Her job is to occupy, or in another Greek translation, do business, or using the Greek original pragmatotheos, Uh, which is the same root as practice until he comes. But that mandate is not limited to the church. It actually is a mandate for every wife. We're to raise our children with an expectation of the future, that they're they're to be challenged, that, that they look not only positively at change, but they instigate change. We're not a subculture. We're a counterculture. This is the role of the church. The reason why we're apathetic and we don't engage is because we have this idea that this is not our kingdom. We don't have the authority to step in and set it right. We're just polishing brass on the Titanic, waiting for it to sink and and for the world to go to hell in a handbag. And then the Lord's going to take us home. And every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. Now, post-millennial eschatology has many liabilities, as does Premillennialism has many liabilities. And one liability to postmillennial thought is that there's not, there, we don't evangelize. Premillennialists evangelize. We're committed to that. The Calvary Chapel church growth movement occurred because we were premillennial. We believe that we have to get people into the kingdom before the rapture and before the world goes down in a handbag. And so you look at this and you realize. We as a people have to see ourselves in the light of Proverbs 31. We're the bride of Christ. And our wives have to see themselves in that capacity. One of the reasons why the patriarchal movement has come in is because it's a lot easier not to have to be challenged. But the reality of it is the only way this woman could be a realtor, the only way she could be a landowner, the only way she could be a seamstress, the only way she could be a manufacturer, she had to be educated. Our people should be educated. We should know the culture. We should know how to be able to sit at the city gate and contend so that our husband has a place at the city gate. We don't understand the politics at the city gate. We don't understand the currency at the city gate. We don't understand any of it. And God wants to get his church involved in this as his bride. Proverbs 31 is us. Whoever claims that wives are supposed to remain passive and waiting for their husbands to rule over them and tell them what to do micromanaging their work, shopping and business decisions has no idea what the biblical view of a virtuous, excellent army, military, navy wife is. That biblical view is expressed very specifically in Proverbs 31, as I read earlier. Anyone who does not lay Proverbs 31 as the foundation of his view of the family is not restoring biblical family, but some twisted pagan view of the family, whether patriarchal or feminist. It gives us an, an introduction of what an excellent wife is. This chayil, this idea of a military wife, is so significant. This is the best translation you can find of excellent or virtuous. Um, the husband is embarking orders to his wife. Nothing like that. He's in the gates, taking dominion in the world outside the family. That, that was the location of the judicial authority in Israel. He's out there taking authority because the wife has placed him there by her efforts. He doesn't oversee her work. In fact, verse 11 specifically says that his heart trusts in her. Nothing even similar to disciplining or discipling her as an immature child. He trusts her. She's sharp. She's educated. I'll tell you what, my wife is smarter than me. Her insights have saved our family countless times. My mom was smarter than my dad. My dad didn't need to educate her. She was sharp. Uh, The decision to buy and sell were her own, not his. 
my wife, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do these things. My wife says, let's hold back a little bit. And she takes a look at it and she asks questions that I wouldn't even ask her. I just want to get another. She's patient. She's, she's diligent. She's, she looks at the minutia. I can't stand minutia. She'll explain to me everything she wants to do to the house. We just moved. She, she'll explain to me everything she wants to do to the house. And she's about 600 sentences in and I'm, I'm, I'm done at about 20. And I can't process everything that she's seeing in this visual. I'm like, just tell me where the box is you want me to move because I do not get what you're talking about. Where does she come up with that? How does she see where it's supposed to go? I walk in, I go, I've never seen a house. I mean, this, this is a house. You've turned it into a home. I've, how do you do that? How do you see this? God gave her this gift. She makes economic decisions as to what the family should produce. She makes the economic decisions if something should be produced or bought at a lower price. She's always saying, we don't need this. Why did you buy another one? I don't like it, but she's right. She controls the labor force of the business. She controls the charity contributions of that business. There are times where I feel like I want to give this, and she goes, I don't know if that's what, you know, let's have, and she's right. Times I haven't listened to her, awful. Awful. Amen. She's not a woman whose training has stopped at being able to cook and do laundry and give birth, although she's really good at all those. She's educated, knowledgeable in order to make these decisions like my mom was. Many decisions, depending on the specific situation of the family, will require a business education. The production part may require engineering, the other technical education. This is all stuff. And you think about the spindle that she's working with in Proverbs 31. What would that be today? Think of any type of manufacturing equipment. She's running that thing. She's not expected to be dumb or uneducated. She's expected to be highly educated in circumstances. Uh, I, I was blown away, Tammy Shewitt, I was blown away when she busted out speaking in Spanish. Didn't even know she could pull that off. You're fluent in it. Yeah. Bob, can you speak Spanish? You're an idiot. I love you, though, because we're both in the same boat. Huh? Sprechen Sie Deutsch. Yeah. Eight sentences. No, are you like fluent in it? No. And, and, I, and I look at this, and, and this, is, this is that area. But you look at Tammy and Bob. Tammy submits to Bob. They do it together. She educates the children because she's the smartest one. She knows all the aspects of it. They purchase together. They buy things together. This is how you do it. This is how Michelle and I operate. It's not this idea that, that she, you know, the, the wife is, is under my control and go get my slippers and my pipe, and I'll tell you if I need anything else. A biblical woman is not expected to be dumb. But that's not all. She's not expected to be silent either. She doesn't need to be discipled in her faith. She doesn't need to be patronized and humiliated. Not at all. She's a source of wisdom and teaching. Verse 26 says that she opens her mouth in wisdom. The virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 is expected to speak with God's authority. You look at Proverbs 1.8 and Proverbs 6.20, it admonishes the man not to forget the teachings of his mother. And, and actually the word for teaching in both places is Torah. She's handling the word of God, God's law. He didn't use Musar, he used Torah. Um, and he used it twice in a row. When a woman... And the mother is speaking with wisdom. She's speaking as God's representative. Her authority is not delegated through anyone, not even her husband. It may be united with his authority in the same covenant, but it is distinct. She has her own authority under God, and it is her own whether her husband delegates it or not. It's good to work together because things always operate better, and that's why the church should always seek what God wants, and we want to be aligned. But he gives us the ability to work outside of his authority and to make decisions. And sometimes the Bible says that the apostles did what seemed right in their own eyes. The Lord blessed it. Those aren't times where we've done really well as a church when we haven't sought the Lord in prayer. And, and this idea of calling your husband when he's wrong, when he goes astray, she's under obligation to oppose her husband when he goes astray. The greatest biblical example of this is Rebecca and her deception of her husband Isaac. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to discuss it, but one thing is clear. Contrary to many claims today, Rebecca was not in rebellion against Isaac when she encouraged Jacob to deceive his father. 
It was Isaac who had gone against the will of God, trying to thwart God's plan by giving away the birthright for a meal. And you look at Rebecca's actions, they were aimed at keeping her husband within the plan of God. She was successful and Isaac acknowledged it. He never changed his mind. The importance and power of a woman's authority in the family can be seen also in the fact that the Bible doesn't expect women to be passive, even in the very act of the marriage proposal. We think it's cool that the guy goes and asks a woman for a hand in marriage, but um, just read the Song of Solomon. That woman's aggressive. I'll leave it at that. Paul actually commands, uh, commands women to take the initiative in getting married. 1 Timothy 5.14, I want the younger uh, widows, uh, he says in 1 Timothy 5.14, to marry, bear children, and rule households. But such command is impossible in our modern church culture. How can a woman, let alone a widow, obey Paul's commands if she has to abide by the rules of a modern society? If she is to remain passive, waiting for a man to come to her, she may never be able to marry again. It's hard enough for unmarried girls to find bridegrooms in the modern effeminate church culture. Girly men. How would a widow be able to do it unless she takes initiative? And Paul lays all this out. Um, let me leave you with this. I got 12 minutes. I want to read out of this portion, and then I'll close with it. None of the four major Protestant eschatological positions has been defended exegetically by a large body of scholarly or comprehensive books. So we argue over eschatology, the study of the end times, endlessly, and nobody's done a lot of work on it. All eschatological positions in the 20th century have rested on comparative handful of books that at best sketch the broad exegetical case for their respective positions. But here's three questions we're going to ask tonight. As the church, as the bride of Christ, three questions we're going to ask. You ready? Do you hope that your work on earth will leave a positive legacy to future generations, no matter how small the legacy is, even if no one in the future remembers who you were or what you did? Do you want to leave a legacy for your children? Anybody? I just honored my mother and my father. They blessed me beyond measure. I want to do the same for my kids. A righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. What are you leaving? What legacy are you leaving? We're to leave it better than we found it. My dad came out of a pagan home. My, my, my grandfather was a town drunk. My grandmother was a tarot card reader. My father was the first to get a college degree in his family and the only to get a college degree in his family. He left better than he got. And he loved my mom. And he served this country. Three tours of Vietnam. He was admired and loved and served in the civic arena. He served as a president of the Rotary. He ran for city council. He was engaged in politics. He was in, he just, chamber of commerce president. He worked. And he expected his kids to do the same. The second question we'll ask, does God's word return to him void? Why is there hesitancy tonight? <laughs> does God's word return to him void? Can you legitimately, and this is the third question, can you legitimately expect that your good works and good deeds will have more impact in the future than your evil words and evil deeds? Yeah. Yeah. Only what's done for Christ will last. Hello? Not just building up treasures in heaven. I'm talking about your legacy, your history on the earth right here. Not storing your, tre your treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not break in, and, or thieves will not break in and steal, and moth and rust will not destroy. I'm talking about a legacy on this earth. An inheritance in the broader sense. That, that, that we're to have dominion over the earth. These, these three questions, um, let me take a look at them from a historical outcome in regards to your personal efforts. What is your philosophy of history? 
I was a history major in high school. What is the church's role in history? Are we just here buying time until it all implodes and then we go home? His story? How does our effort on this earth affect history? By our engagement. We write it. We live it. We leave a legacy. The relationship between the faithful preaching of the gospel and the extension of Christ's kingdom in history. The cultural effects of this extension of Christ's kingdom in history. This is another way of asking, what is the relationship between ethics and authority in history? Is there a predictable cause and effect relationship long-term between personal righteousness and success and personal unrighteousness and failure? When you commit adultery, does it affect your family for generations? You bet it does. When you're faithful, does it affect your family for generations? You bet it does. Does one leave a cancer and the other leave a blessing? We have a role in history. There's a predictable cause and effect. What about corporate righteousness as a nation? What about corporate unrighteousness? I'll I'll leave you with this. We've been talking about theonomy and it raises two very divisive issues. One, personal and corporate responsibility. If we are called as the church, Proverbs 31, with all of these responsibilities and to act in, on Christ's behalf with his full authority at the city gate and have this effect in a community where our children call us blessed, our community calls us blessed, and our husband is praised at the city gate, what is our personal and corporate responsibility to that? Now, you want equality, and I'm speaking to wives, and I'm also speaking to the church. So what is our role? We have to get busy. We have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word truth. We've got to get into the civic arena. We've got to be at the city gates. We've got to be involved in manufacturing. We've got to be involved in real estate. We've got to be involved in all these cultural activities. And if there's an avoidance of it, we're in trouble. What is the church's responsibility in transforming culture? Do do we just sit back and let it go to hell in a handbag and polish the brass on the Titanic while it sinks? What is our role in transforming culture? We're Proverbs 31. We have a distinct responsibility to engage in the culture. Our personal responsibility as Christians. It's funny that husbands want their wives to submit. And yet, as men, we don't. Uh, I would say for the church, I've got two things left, and then I'll take questions because I know a lot of you are going to be upset. For the church, it's a lot easier to sit quietly and pray silently. Oh, it'll change if we just keep praying. It'll change if we just sit quietly. God, God is in control of everything. We just need to pray. I'm not dismissing prayer, but show me in Proverbs 31 where the woman is praying where all of our activity is focused simply on praying. Show me anywhere in Proverbs 31 of all that we read where that's the case. Show me anywhere, anywhere. Doesn't mean she doesn't pray. It's not all that she does. She's asking for wisdom as she continually goes on, but she is industrious in what she's doing. She has a purpose and 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 a drive. This is that idea of a military wife. And we would just rather sit and pray and avoid any conflict So the whole point of it tonight is we like to look at Proverbs 31 and see all the ways in which as husbands, our wives don't live up to this unbelievable statistic instead of look at the church and say, what's my role? Instead of look at our own lives and say, what's my responsibility? And we, and we look at the earth and we're, we're ready to give up on it. And I got news for you. My mom did not give up on my dad when the ship blew up. In full authority, she was holding together that family. And she patched where it was broken and fixed where it it needed help. And she loved on people who lost loved ones. 
She moved households. She raised children. She did all that in the absence of my dad with the full authority of my father. And they walked through life together for 55 years as partners. I've raised five kids with my wife as partners. We're different, but we're equal. She'll come to me for decisions. And you know what? Not because she has to. She married me willingly. I know that's hard to believe. She lacks discernment. I'm kidding. But the question for us, forget dividing men and women. The question for us is the church. Why Why are we so apathetic to engage in culture? Why are we not industrious? We are representing our husband, the Lord. There's a culture to touch and families to raise. There's education to be achieved. There's city gates to be influenced. There's manufacturing that needs to be done and real estate that needs to be purchased and lives that need to be affected to leave an inheritance and and a mark for generations to come. We must do this. And this is the last thing. If we did a harvest crusade every week, one a week, 52 a year, and, and this is a large number, but let's say 800 people come to Christ. Or we each commit to sharing Christ with one person, leading them to the Lord in the course of a year and discipling them, raising them. And then we go and find another person the following year and they go and find a person. And then the following year, they go and find a person. They go. It's, it's the idea of, do you want... now or do you want a penny doubled every day for 30 days? In our lifetime, we will reach more people for Christ if we just evangelize one person a year as opposed to having a crusade every week 52 times in a year. But you know what? This is the bummer. It requires that you actually have to get involved in someone's life and the mess and, and, and endeavor with them like raising kids and sitting at the city gate and and dealing with employees and dealing with books and dealing with and dealing with and dealing with. Yes, roll up your sleeves and let's get to work. That's the church. We're, we're, We're so wanting to fight each other to define who we are when in reality, let's just work together. That's what God always intended. Amen?